We are starting a brand new sermon series this morning in the book of Haggai. And you think, the book of what? It's there. It is in your Bibles. Oh, I didn't grab a red pew Bible. Is there a red one? I'll tell you the page number because I don't want you to be lost there. It's between the little bitty itty book of Zephaniah and before Zechariah in our Old Testament. It is one of the minor prophets and the page is uh, 937 in the Red Pew Bibles. 937. That was one right in front of me. I'm really excited. We'll get into the history and the context of this book. Now, the best way I can kind of describe what this book is about is this. Um, has anybody ever done one of those YouTube walking tours of like some city around the world? Is that just me? So, okay, some people have, right? So, um, yeah, it's probably the most American boring thing to do, right? To like watch people walk around a city. Um, but I was doing one of Egypt, right? Somebody was there to the sunrise, walking. They had this little device thing that as you're walking, there's no bounce. So it's like you're floating through the pyramids, right? But it gives you this perspective as if you're actually walking around, like as if you are doing the tour of Egypt itself, right? They're interested all over the city, you know, Rome and, you know, Paris, and you can do any city really that you want on YouTube. Now, nobody has done, watched an hour or two of that. I never survive like two hours. Usually it's like, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, but it's interesting. You never do that and you're like, now I'll never have to visit Egypt. Like I'm just completely satisfied with seeing this, this, this virtual tour of the Pyramid of Giza. And like, I'm, I'm satisfied, I'm happy, I don't ever have to go. And so next time you're hanging out with your friends and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I've been to this really cool place, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, I went to Egypt, kind of. Like you don't do that. You know, because we know that that's not the real thing. We don't let that become a substitute for the real thing. This is what the book of Haggai is ultimately about. It's about spiritual renewal. It's about spiritual awakening in God's people. But it's about a time when they were in the promised land, when they had returned after exile, right? So, you know, they, they made it to the promised land but they found other things that weren't God and got distracted. So they got a little taste of the promised land, but in a way, they weren't really there. You guys tracking with that? They got a taste of being in the land, but they weren't really looking for God there. And it was kind of like watching a virtual tour, right? They got cheapened by some kind of substitute for the real thing. Now, spiritual renewals in church history and in people's lives, they, it comes when we rediscover the presence of God. Spiritual dryness and deadness occur in our lives when we find cheap substitutes for the Spirit of God. When we find, you know, it's like eating a candy bar before dinner. You may feel like you're not hungry anymore, but nothing of nourishment entered your body to give you energy, right? And that's kind of how we often do with the very presence of God, we, we look for cheap things that temporarily kind of satisfy our inner deep longings for God and we keep doing this, right? And what happens is as Christians, when we do this, when we, we find these kind of cheap substitutes, often we have like one hand still clinging to God, but we're still kind of 
meddling with these things, satisfying those deep spiritual inner desires and longings and needs with the other things while still kind of, you know, holding on to, to God. And I think what happens, it gives birth to a kind of really casual and spiritually dead Christianity. We're just kind of, we show up to church and we're here and we kind of, you know, we do want to be there, right? We may pray before dinner and, you know, uh, etc. And we, we can Bible studies, may go to those here or there, but this largely still a powerless relationship with Jesus. It may provide a small taste of knowing him, but as Paul once said, is forms of a godliness that have no power. And this is the, the story of God's people in the book of Haggai. We're going to break down all of chapter one this morning. Um, if there's anything I want you to hear this morning, and I mean this, okay, just as it was the case for these people, spiritual renewal is available. In fact, it's literally in front of your face. It's right here. And the message of Haggai was, reach out and grab it. You might have to work for it, but it's there. So let's, let's look into this. A little history context of Haggai is this. In 586 BC, that is 586 years before Christ, the temple in Israel was destroyed. Babylonians came, you can read about it. It was judgment upon you know, the nation of Israel for centuries of just straying from him. Um, the northern Israel was exiled some years before. Uh, the, the, the southern kingdom of Judea was, Judah was finally um, exiled. The temple was raised. Okay, so fast forward about 50-ish years. Okay, you start seeing the first waves of exiles returning some probably who were there before and some people who were actually born in Babylon. Babylon exchanged hands to the Persians and um, this King Cyrus had begun giving permission and actually resources to send these exiles back to the promised land to kind of restart, to bring anew what was lost, right? The book of Ezra tells this story you can read. So there's about 50,000, only about 50,000. The majority actually stayed in Babylon but 50,000 people were willing to pick up and put their backpack on with all their belongings and, and go for a new life, right? You don't just do that. Um, it's, that's a great risk, right? So we know these people really, they began by with a deep desire for God and to be with him, okay? But here's a couple of things, right? As they got there, they built the altar, which was the place where sacrifices took place. But some things happened, some, some locals that were non-Jews, not a part of God's family, they began to have some opposition. They began to resist a little bit this, this idea of rebuilding the temple. So they got done with the altar and then they kind of stopped, okay? So presumably sacrifices was happening there, worship was occurring, but the temple itself to be rebuilt, it kind of just stopped and nothing was happening. So before we get into a little more, like what, what was the idea of the temple? Okay, like what did the temple in the Old Testament really mean? It was, it was more symbolic than real. And let me break down with that, what I mean by that. God's presence was in the temple, but it wasn't like the fullness of his presence. And Israel knew this from day one. When Solomon had built the first temple, he says in a prayer, like inauguration of the temple in 1 Kings 8, he said, I know he built a temple, but he says this in verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built, right? It wasn't like this was God just switched his home from heaven and brought the fullness of his presence to this temple. It wasn't quite what the temple was really about. It was more of a symbolic kind of within the grand master plan of God's full plan of redemption to, to begin ushering again after Eden and after, you know, they were tempted and exiled and sin and evil entered this world. It was part of his plan to usher his presence back into this world that one day, as Habakkuk says in Numbers chapter 14, that knowledge of him would go as far as the east is to the west, that the knowledge of God would cover the earth once again just as the waters cover the sea and Israel was to be a light to the nations and that the temple who the very God of the universe's Shekinah glory was present there in order that they may one day in one year in one step at a time be that light to say no O nations your God who created you know them Isaiah speaks of this right and also the very presence of God in the temple kind of commanded the existence of Israel They went there regularly. They worshiped God there regularly. They had holidays where they ate and drank and feasted before God there. They also had others where they went there and they fasted before God. It was the very center of their lives, of their nation, right? To be in the land was to consistently go back to the presence of God as found in the temple to be to to teach Israel to say you cannot do this thing called life this gift of life I've given you apart from my presence you can't do it but know that when the temple was neglected in Israel's history it has also happened every single time simultaneously to when their hearts were distant from God when their hearts were distant from God the temple went into neglect there's always that core relation right but it was the presence of God that it was really all about from day one. We, we were praying this morning, and Dino mentioned this verse, and there was a time when Moses, all the way back in Exodus, they were about to go into the promised land. And, and they had sinned and messed up, and God was just frustrated, and he said, you know what, you can go, you know, you'll take out the people and the land, and you can have it, but you know what, I'm not going with you. Exodus 3.33, he says, go up to the land flowing me milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Like this was God's, he's like, I I think I'm kind of done here. This is so distressing for Moses, but I want you to listen to Moses' words here. Exodus 33, 15, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us, right? What's the promised land without the presence of God? I don't want it without you. I don't want to go there without you, God. This was the heart of Moses. Now the promised land was going to be this amazing place full of fruit, full of abundance, the land flowing in milk and honey. And Moses says, I don't want any of it if I don't have you with me, God. And so we're going to look at a much later generation of Israel. They got the promised land. But guess what was missing? The presence of God. The temple was not rebuilt, and they weren't even trying to rebuild it. They were like us, sitting at home with our virtual tours of Egypt. And they're like, I'm I'm satisfied with what we have without having the real thing. So let's look at this. 
beginning of verse one of, of, of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now keep in mind, these prophets, they were like God's mouthpiece, okay? You know those old bullhorn things? You know, that, that, that was the prophet, okay? God hits their button, speaks, and it, his, his voice goes out through them. I just made that up, it's pretty good. I wanna remember that. All right, that's what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Verse three, then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time? For you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains in a ruin. So there's something you learn quickly from this. The last time a paneled house was mentioned was all the way back when Solomon was building God's temple and the temple had paneled walls. Paneled homes in these days, this was evidence of wealth, of luxury, of flourishing materially. Okay, In other words, as we're going to see in a minute, they got to the land and actually things were kind of going really well, economically speaking. They had a lot. They were living in paneled homes, right? Things were going well, but there was something that was then neglected. Something was still in ruins while their house was far from ruins. Almost named a sermon a tale of two homes, right? Because it's kind of what's going on here, Okay. Their house was doing wonderful, but where was the temple? Where was his presence? Where was their desire for God's presence in this place, in the promised land? They got the promised land, but they missed the whole point of the promised land, right? Which was the very presence of God, right? So I'm, I'm gonna look into what, how God responds to this, okay? Because let's pay attention here in verse five. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Some of your translations may say, set your heart on your ways, right? Like, pay attention. Do some scrutiny for your, your way of life right now. Let's, let's analyze what's going on. You have planted much but harvested little, you eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. This is what's happening. It wasn't like they didn't have clothing. Most commentators and scholars agree with what the words, what's going on here. They had clothing, they had food, they had drink, they had these things, but it's speaking to that spiritual fulfillment that their hearts were set on, trying to find, you know, fill the void within with all of that stuff. He's saying you keep eating all this extra food that you have, but you're not satisfied, Right? You keep having more and more money, but all you want is more money. It's just like your bag has a hole in it because you keep wanting to stuff it again and again and again. And I think we can relate to this in our materially abundant culture today, right? I often just wonder how far are we distracted by stuff? I don't know if we'll ever know, right? 
because even the poorest among us in America has, you know, flushing toilets that medieval kings would just dream and fantasize about having, right? The, the amount of amenities and just comfort that we have in our country, I, I don't even know if we can somehow even think about what life would be like without it, right? And so often feel that we look to these things rather than enjoying them as gifts, we look to them as little gods that can fill that void inside. It's one thing to enjoy a meal and drink and sustain yourself. Another thing to look to food and drink to fill the emptiness of your soul. It's one thing to earn and make money. Another thing to think money and material wealth and the stuff is a missing ingredient for the deep longings within. Now these people had the promised land. They had the abundance, but they were spiritually numb because of these things. Like I said, like eating that candy bar before you're hungry and before dinner, right? It kills the hungry feelings, but there's nothing of meaning that went inside of your body. They received God's blessings in the land, but traded the blessings for God himself. C.S. Lewis once had a really insightful quote. Maybe you've read it before that he speaks directly to this. It should be on the screen behind us. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds, I want you to pay attention to this. Maybe I've read this before, I don't know. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us but like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. You get what he's saying there? These cheap substitutes, somehow we think like, oh yeah, this is great. We're far too easily pleased with what's actually offered us. We're getting to this as we keep working through. Verse seven says, give careful thought. Devote your heart to considering perhaps what really is offered to us, right? You've enjoyed this, almost like this virtual tour of the promised land, if you will, but you're missing the real thing of what this is all about. You've missed the real reason why you're here. It's about God himself and his presence, and it's a call to work. It's a call to build the temple, to grab your hammer and get busy cultivating and practicing, if you want to say that this way, the presence of God. He says, it's time for you to chase after me. Now, apparently, if we're going to read the next few verses, two things have begun happening to kind of give them the wake-up call. One, they were beginning to be kind of let down by these substitutes, because that's what always happens. They never deliver. And it's only a matter of time before you either try to switch or go even more all in to try to make them deliver, or you realize this stuff is empty, right? And the second is their prosperity was beginning to feel a little strained. These are verses here in verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. Remember as a kid, like, dreaming about this gift for Christmas, and you finally get it, and you're like, huh, it's better dreaming about it. <laughs> I don't know if it ever happened to you, right? You expected so much from this prosperity, but look, pay attention. It's turning out to be little, and you know it. What you brought home 
I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Yes, they were beginning to realize this, this really isn't delivering what I, what I am looking for. And secondly, God was beginning to take it away anyhow. This does serve as a warning. It's always nice to talk about the things that God does for us that are blessings, right? But sometimes he wants to wake you up. And it's a prophetic warning in our lives to say, if you continue, God wants you. He wants you so much, he's going to do anything to get you. Here's a call to stop while you're already ahead, right? Because sometimes it can get painful because he loves you that much, like a father who disciplines his children. All right, so as we move forward here, right, how do we climb out of this, right? How does Israel climb out of this? How do these returned exiles climb out of this? Um, maybe they were beginning to kind of awaken, right, for their deep, the need for their deep spiritual renewal, to discover a greater joy, a greater fulfillment in the very presence of God himself, to, to kind of conquer their casual relationship. Because remind, let's remind ourselves here, um, they went to the promised land. Like, these aren't people who are anti-God here, okay? Like, they took a lot of risk and probably left behind a lot of comfort, in Babylon to go back and start afresh to be in the promised land. So these aren't people who were far from him, right? But I think they were just casually there. I titled the sermon series Resisting Casual Christianity because I think that's the piece that's so hard with this, right? We don't want to just casually have a, you know, faith in Jesus that it's just casually have a relationship with him. There's, there's so much more that we're called to and so much more offered to us. And that's what this book is about, right? And I think the most difficult part of this whole thing begins with the first little step here because he, he, he offered this to them. He said, look, I, I want you to, to rebuild. I want you to start anew, get, get to work on this spiritual renewal that this nation needs. And I think the most important thing that we need to realize first is the very first step is your own will to kind of make that first plunge I don't know if you're like me right when sometimes I pray and I know that God is just through his spirit is just offering me more of himself and I'm just like it's going to be a little costly for me and I resist because the truth is I like having one hand out to God and not two And the first thing, the most most difficult part of this is our very own will, our very own first initial openness to say, I I do want this. Like, I actually want this, God. And I know this is going to be risky and costly for me, but I, I want you. I want more of you. He wants to break our will first. Because naturally, because we are just sinful creatures, our will is always going to initially first be thinking of yourself of your own comforts, of your own pleasures, before anything else. And no matter how old you get in life or how long you walk with Jesus, it's gonna still be the problem within our own spirits. But something happened with these people, right? Their will did crumble. They went and found some hammers, some wood, 
and they went to work and something beautiful happened, right? Because and these are followers of, of God, right? These are people, God's people, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just supposing they were kind of already in his family here. And so they, they get hammers and look what happens next. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel. Now, mind you, nothing's happened yet, okay? Maybe they picked up the hammer and that's about it, okay? Um, they express, listen, this is what happens. Son of Zerubbabel, son of Sheetil, son of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the kind of leaders, okay? And Zerubbabel is actually in the family lineage of King David here, and also Christ. The high priest, Joshua. The whole remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of their of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. Before any work has been happening, right? And this shows the temple is more kind of a symbolic than anything else, right? His presence, he said, I'm already here, right? I'm here, I'm with you. Before you even start, your heart is now directed to me and I am going to be with you every step of this way right? That's the key, right? Before any piece of wood was lifted, before any hammer was swung, when their own will was turned towards God and they feared him and simply said, yes, Lord, I'm open to this. I'm ready for this. Yes, Lord. He says, that's great because I'm already here. Like I'm already with you. Now you just know it. Now you're just aware of it. I am with you. You are beginning this journey and I'm going to join you in it. Something awesome happens, right? We're gonna see more of this in chapter two, but God is not just with them. He begins stirring their spirits. Now, if you don't get a picture of non-stirring, right? Of not having a stirring towards the things of God, that was them sitting in their paneled homes saying, it's not really time for the, you know, for the temple to be built. Like, I still gotta finish like that bonus room in my house or whatever, you know? Like, I'm, we're good over here. They began being stirred. Verse 14. This is what we call, I like to call spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality enters where once spiritual numbness was present. Verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetil, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, and the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They were stirred. Friends, when is the last time you were stirred? by God like I mean that when is the last time you were stirred just sitting there saying God I want more of you you were just stirred but to be stirred is to it leads to you doing something right so the spirit was their hearts were stirred and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. The Spirit of God was responsible for that, as we'll see in chapter two. Someone talked to us today as followers of Jesus on the back end of our sermon as you look at the pathway to spiritual renewal for us. I really, truly wonder how much we, and maybe you do, and I, I, I sometimes maybe I do, right, but How much do we truly invite and seek out the Holy Spirit to fill us on a daily basis 
I mean genuinely just hunger and stir for the fullness of God to fill you as Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in Ephesus 3. How often do you seek that out? Spiritual renewal and a reinvigoration in our heart simply never comes without really just laboring for it. I think we love, like, my phone's not with me, but, you know, our phones are like magic. You push a button, like, the whole world is just, like, present. And I think we often want that to happen with, with the Lord, that, you know, we, we pray and we're just like, Lord, hit the magic button, just boom, like, fill me, you know, like, come on. Um, and sometimes, like, we have those experiences, and, that, and that's wonderful. But if you listen to those who have really walked with Christ for some time, to talk about prayer, to talk about cultivating just an awareness of the presence of God and a spiritual reinvigoration. It takes a lot of work of going back to prayer time and time again, of battling your own will to want to find those cheap substitutes, right? This is work. It's like getting the hammer and trying to, to go and chase after God day after day, after week, after month, right? But it's one thing to attend church and a few Bible studies. It's one thing to also be daily on your knees saying, come Holy Spirit to my life, to my family, to my children. Come, fill me. The promised land was intended to be a glimpse of heaven on earth. It really was. Because that's where the presence of God is. As the Lord's prayer says, on earth as it is in heaven. God is trying to just usher back in his kingdom on this earth with his presence there. Psalm 16 talks about the fullness of joy that is found in the presence of God. And through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, when he sent the Holy Spirit down to indwell us all, he is ushering his kingdom of heaven one person at a time, one glimpse of a time on this world. Because wherever his presence is, there's a glimpse of heaven. Infinite joy is available to us. A glimpse of the, of the infinite joys of heaven is available to us. In his presence, when we learn to abhor sin, when we learn to discover and rediscover the power of God through his spirit who is always with us, that's exactly why Moses said, I don't want that promised land if you aren't there. For what is a piece of land without your very spirit? That is what the, these returned exiles in Haggai were missing out and also think it's what you and I are missing out when we show up the church and participate in Christian kind of church activities, right? We, we're like, we're living in the promised land, but are you really seeking after the presence of God in your very life? Are you open to his work in your life? The book of Haggai is a call to, to rebuild our life with God. And it's a long, slow, and hard, and difficult process often that really seriously will often feel like, I don't know, nothing's happening, Right? You may wake up tomorrow and say, I want to do this, I'm going to pray, and like, I don't, I'm not feeling anything. Great, do it again. Oh, do it again. Keep going, right? This is kind of the work that we must do in this. What I don't want is to have a church where we get, how can I say this? I don't want a church whose members can just kind of become just like a part of just sitting around here but not experiencing God himself 
I don't want that. Just stay home and watch a YouTube Bible study if you want that, okay? There's plenty of them. Well, much better preachers and teachers than myself. That's fine. Go home and do that. But the Spirit of God is present in his people and he gathers us together every single week or every single time his people are together. He says, you need more of me and I want to fill you. Are you open to this in your life? This is what we want here at our church. This is the kind of renewal that God wants us to experience here in this church. I want to share a couple of stories in the back end. Because a part of our, if you have a bulletin, you look on, the, on our values kind of language here. Our mission statement is equipping followers of Jesus to share his love and good news with our neighbors. This sermon is more about, you know, we, we said there's, there's three ways you want to equip people here to be followers of Jesus, to share his love and good news. To be with him, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus and to do the things that he did. That's kind of the pathway that we're setting forward. And this sermon is really about that first piece, being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. I'm telling you, we can, have, we can carry with us a glimpse of what Jesus called paradise, of the garden of heaven with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, there's, there's so many to, to account for, but um, Jacob, um, he, he was a guy in the book of Genesis who was a liar, he was a cheat, he was on the run, his life was uh, at risk because he had stolen everything away from his brother. Talk about a hard heart towards God, right? And as he was on the run, he stops in this place called Luz, uh, L-U-Z, okay? This is um, kind of like, you know, Roosterville in Georgia. It's like, it's nowhere, okay? There's a real place in Georgia. Um, he stops there to sleep on the run. He had no tent, he gets a stone for his pillow and he's laying there. I want you to hear what happens. Genesis 28, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. Your offspring shall be the dust of the earth. He shall spread about abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And to your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. I am with you. I will keep you. You know how Jacob responded to this? He wakes up, Genesis 28. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. Listen to this. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gates of heaven. When God shows up in our life, the gates of heaven are showing up. Like, I want you to understand this. Like, it's, it's, it's available to us. When God shows up in our life, it's like the gates of heaven are opening up in our life. We have access, if even only a glimpse, into who God is and to experience him. And we get to be, as Paul said, continually full and full and full of the fullness of God. This is what these exiles and the promised land needed. They needed to be with God again. I have three things I want to say of, of practical ways we can cultivate this. Because spiritual renewal will follow 
Guaranteed. At some point, it may take a year of labor of learning how to pray and learning how to seek and become aware of his presence. I know this. And we're, in the new year, we're talking a whole lot for many months about that very thing. How do we cultivate an awareness of God's presence in our life? That's to come in 2023. But three basic kind of ways to leave here today um, to equip us before we go to communion. Number one, pray for God's help to continually turn your will to Jesus and from yourself. Don't pray at once, because it ain't gonna go away after one prayer. <laughs> pray it daily. Wake up, repeat that prayer to Jesus, not mine own will today, Lord, but yours. That's the first obstacle, is yourself, right? That's the first obstacle, Lord, not my will today, but yours. Help me not to resist your voice and your work in my life today. Not my will, but yours. Number two, be open to what God may want you to do, what he may call you to do. He may want to radically shape you and transform you. And I think the substitutes we often go to, we think that there's a transformative power in the cheap substitutes, that the food and drink and Netflix binges and stuff can just deliver what we're looking for and can kind of, you know, oh, now I'm better, now I'm, you know. And to use salvation language, sometimes we think those things can save us. But are you open to God and his transformation through his spirit in your life? Are you open to that? And number three, pray and invite him daily for an awareness of his presence in your life and work at it. I want you to do this, and we're probably gonna do it here before we go to communion, actually. Is to wake up, I've been trying to do it, and you know, there's been some morning, sure I miss it because of whatever reasons, but um, to wake up with your hands outstretched and say, Holy Spirit, I need you this morning, come. And may my hands be an outward representation of my own heart my own heart's desire to receive you today. Come, Holy Spirit, in my life. I want to share a real story with you. Um, before we go to uh, uh, Pastor Bill, here's going to lead us in, um, in some communion. Jonathan Edwards, he was a chief leader in the Great Awakening, lived in about the revolutionary time in New, uh, in New England in uh, the 1700s in our country. Um, the Spirit of God began working mightily through him, uh, forever changing uh, the whole Northeast. Uh, amazing stuff. Read about his story. Um, he wrote something called his personal narrative when, when his own will, which he was a smart guy, right? So his own will and intellect was in the way. He couldn't just put God in the box, and he struggled. I don't understand how evil exists, how God is good, and all those kind of questions. And he was a younger guy, and he just wrestled and wrestled until one day, he just said, I don't get it, and I think that's okay after all. And it was with faith that he embraced God and not his own reason. And once that was breached, I want you to listen to the words. I love reading this. I've read it so many times. I almost have it memorized at this point. I want you to just hear how he, I cut it in half. He, he kept writing on and on about it. This is what he says. He, he spoke right before this of this, this building inward delight that occurred in his own heart for the first time. Listen to this. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I had lived so much in since was on reading those words, 1 Timothy 1, 17. 
Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Your scriptures better be open in your lap as you're seeking prayer and seeking renewal in your own life, right? As I read these words, there came into my soul, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and it be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying and as as were singing over these words of scriptures to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and in a manner, prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to with a new sort of affection. He desired to be wrapped up to heaven as it were, being swallowed up in him forever. If you pay attention to people who cultivated that prayer life and had those kind of experiences, it's like the gates of heaven opening up in their own hearts. And I pray as we leave here today, that through those old, just spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and things that we just seek after the Holy Spirit with our scriptures open, praying the words of scripture into our hearts. And I truly believe, friends, I truly believe the church can be on the, the very fringe of just an awakening in our lifetime that we have not seen in many decades. And I pray it can even begin here. I really sincerely mean that. Let me pray. Lord, um, help us to not seek your blessings and get distracted by them and bow to them as if they were you. Awaken us to the fullness of your glory. May we catch a glimpse of you, God, in our lives. May it spur us to a life of just power and love and service of others just as you did when you were here. Lord, the life of the cross as we're just carrying that cross behind us. Lord, open to whatever call or sacrifice you are asking us to make. Lord, that we are just one step at a time dragging that, that cross behind us. Lord, carrying in our own bodies, Lord, the very life that you lived, Lord. One of sacrifice on the altars, Paul talks about it, Lord, that we are just living sacrifices for you. But Lord, help us to experience you, to know you, to be with you, God. Help us to work at it, Lord. And we ask in your grace that you would open our eyes to see you, Lord. May we not be content until we are like Moses in that very same chapter, begging and yelling, God, show me your glory. I want to know you. I want to see you. May we not be content until those words are just coming out of our mouth. Show me who you are, God. And Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.